It's a complex world out there in the world of personal and commercial finance. Honestly, most people really don't understand how mortgage interest rates work or why and how they actually change. Now, this matters a ton when it comes to buying a home, even if that 0.25% difference in interest rate could mean tens of thousands of dollars over the life of the loan. With almost the entire country eligible for a home refinance right now, we are going to go over some of the important questions you need to understand the answers to. So let's jump in. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and thank you so much for being here. I normally don't do this, but I'm going to start off with one request from each and all of you, and I hope you take me up on it. If this podcast has provided you with any value at all, please consider sharing any one of my nearly 250 episodes with another physician friend or a physician spouse. I've made it my mission to help as many physicians and their families as possible, and I can only do that with your help. They need to find us, our community here at Financial Residency, so please help spread the word by sharing it with just one friend. Of course, the more the merrier, but it would mean the world to me if you could just take a few minutes out of your day and share it with someone who can benefit from the value we're bringing here on the show and in our community. Now, we have an exciting show for all of you. We are interviewing Jim Webster from Fulton Mortgage, all about mortgage-backed securities. Now, that doesn't sound like the sexiest of topics. It's definitely not the most clickbaity topic, but this is real information you need to understand as it has major implications for your personal finances. We're going to cover many of the typical questions I hear from clients in our fee-only financial planning practice, physician wealth services. Now, we also have a fun curbside consult with someone in our community, Michelle, and then we're going to be rounding out the show with our community highlight. And if you stay to the end, we're going to get super nerdy and hear a fun dad joke because who doesn't like a good dad joke or a cheesy one, whatever. All right, let's welcome Jim on the Financial Residency Podcast and go nerd out and deep dive into the mortgage market. Jim, welcome on the show. Really excited to have you here. Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate the opportunity to listen to your questions and answer anything I can as far as describing the mortgage-backed securities market. Yeah. So someone might've been like mortgage-backed securities. What the heck are these guys going to chat on? And so like, I think we should just start real high level. You know, what is a mortgage-backed security? So the way that the mortgage-backed security market works and the reason why it's important is it is what derives how interest rates are going to be priced for the consumer who is looking to borrow money. So the reality is when somebody applies for a loan, it's a debt to them, but it's an asset to someone else. And mortgage-backed securities are constantly trading in the economy. There's roughly about $13 trillion worth of current mortgage-backed securities that are in place. And those securities go up and down every single day based on the ebbs and flows of supply and demand, basic economics. The price of that goes up or down, and that's what the new correlation for new interest rates are derived from. So someone might be sitting there going like, okay, I get kind of high level how that works. So how does that look like for me? When I go take out a mortgage, how are they going to decide whether to keep my mortgage on their books and it become a portfolio loan? Or how does it end up in that mortgage back pool of securities then gets packaged and traded out on Wall Street? Well, that 
conversation is actually a little bit more intense than what you might initially think. And the reason why that's the case is that there are really a couple of subsections of mortgages and those subsections will be Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac agency type loans. Those are the most liquid mortgage backed securities that trade. And those ones are really subject to the supply and demand of the overall economy and the mortgage backed securities market. Things like a doctor loan, a portfolio loan, those have a different interest rate associated with them because of the various cost of funds that are required in order to compensate the various investor. So even banks that do 100% financing, like my bank, there's a certain cost of funds associated with doing a loan. So the pricing for the interest rate that someone will get will be influenced greatly by the mortgage-backed security market for a portfolio loan, or if someone is going to do an agency loan, then that will obviously be the most influenced by the current bond market, and that trades every single day. And you said something, and I've talked about it several times on the show already, but I think for those that maybe have missed some of these other shows on physician mortgages or doctor loans, why don't you give them just a quick one minute of what you're actually an expert in, like these physician mortgages? So physician mortgages are a strategic type of loan that is offered by typically banks. And that product is a no mortgage insurance loan where the bank is basically saying, we believe that the capital nature that someone invested in themselves in order to become a physician is so important that we're willing to bet that that person won't default on a loan. So that product is typically offered by banks and they use that product as a way of saying, hey, we're going to help enable you to become a homeowner today without having mortgage insurance, with having probably some pretty relaxed restrictions for qualifying that may or may not be available for a, a traditional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type loan. So that product is what a lot of doctors use when they're starting out because they don't want to be renters. They want to own a home and they want to get an effective interest rate. So people will call me up. We'll look at the bond market. We'll look at their income assets and credit and make a determination where rates are priced. And that's kind of how it works. Yeah. And you said you'll look at the bond market. And so one of the things I know others are probably thinking here is, well, if the government's going to cut rates, like why aren't my mortgage rates going down? Well, how does the government influence interest rates versus now you're saying the bond market is influencing. So like what factors are kind of influencing pricing? So a couple different factors with that. When the government cuts rates, they're cutting typically short-term interest rates, rates that are going to be for things that are either overnight or debts that will mature in roughly six months or less. A mortgage is a longer term instrument. So when the Fed cuts rates, it puts some downward pressure. But a lot of times when you see, okay, the Fed cut interest rates a quarter point today or half a point today, does that mean mortgage interest rates are going to go down a quarter of a point or half a point? And the answer is no. And the reason for that is it's two different types of security. So what happens is over time when the Fed cuts rates, existing mortgage-backed securities that are already trading pay off through refinancing and then the demand changes. So the supply of loans changes where the price, because there's an inverse relationship between the price of a bond and interest rate. So the price of higher coupon bonds goes up, therefore corresponding rates go lower and that's how it will work. But it doesn't happen instantly. It usually takes a couple of months to go through. That's when the Fed cuts rates. And that's typically what happens. Now there's other factors that play into it every single day. 
And when you're looking at the trading of mortgage-backed securities, every single day, economic news comes out. Typically, when there's bad news in the economy, it may cause the stock market to go down. And then what happens, it causes the bond market, the price of mortgage-backed securities to go up because people are demanding to buy those. So more buyers than sellers, price goes up, but then rates go down. So those are some of the dynamics that are constantly at play every single day in the market. Yeah, And those factors carry through to what type of interest rate would a customer receive. Yeah, it's a great explanation on that. I appreciate you actually going really in depth and thorough in that. Now I can kind of hear some of the people thinking like, okay, this makes sense. Now, if my mortgage is actually going to get bundled up and sold, well, how is the bank then making money off of me and you know borrowing? How does that relationship work? Well, there's a couple different factors for how financial services firms make money when they're servicing a loan. Some of it is they make money on the interest that is received in the monthly billing. Now, I would tell you that the bank isn't making or the institution isn't making the whole amount of the interest because they're typically getting that money from some type of an investor. The investor could be an internal investor that will have a cost of funds. So, for example, a bank might say, hey, we have the savings accounts, checkings accounts, money market accounts, or CD accounts, or whatever the case may be, where they're promising a saver, hey, this is the expected return, but then when they loan money out, they're loan money out a higher rate, so it won't quite be zeroed out that way. I don't know if I'm explaining that completely, but I think you kind of get the concept. And then the other side is, if a loan is sold to Fannie or Freddie, then obviously that loan will be sold on the secondary market. And what happens is the bank may service the loan, but the subservicing goes to Fannie, the money goes to them, and the servicing company will get to keep a very small amount of the interest for doing the billing and collecting um, the funds. So there's two different ways it works. Yeah, you said it correctly. I think that makes sense, right? If let's say a high yield savings account's now 1%, right? So they're paying out 1% to for you to put your money there. They've got to loan it out at a much higher rate. They earn that spread. They turn around, they sell it out. Then you might actually still be paying the same bank as a servicer, but someone else technically owns that debt. And that kind of, uh, you know, kind of begs the question here is some people have had their loans traded quite frequently and their servicers sometimes change and maybe have changed multiple times over their duration of having their mortgage. Why do servicers change when these things are getting bought and sold and traded on the markets? A couple different reasons for that. One reason might be if your loan is originated through a correspondent lender, a wholesale lender, they are simply originating the loan and then they're selling it and they're making a commission on selling that asset. It's the customer's liability, but it's the asset of the institution that originated and they look for another institution that wants to own that security to service it for whatever reason. When banks are looking at or financial services companies that are looking at servicing lots of loans, they have to look at their overall portfolio and say, hey, rates are down, so we know that X amount of people are going to refinance, so we have X amount we need to recover. How are we going to do that? So they'll go into the market and they'll buy loans in those tranches, for lack of a better way of saying it, that will even out their earnings revenue stream for the company. So that's one reason a loan can be bought and sold. And sometimes those institutions may be overweighted in one area and underweighted in another, and they're constantly adjusting that to mitigate the risk for the overall organization. So that's one reason why securities, mortgage-backed securities or loans are sold in and out of the marketplace. So that could be a reason. Another reason is banks may just want to have 
loans on the books because typically most loans today, you really have to qualify for it. In order to meet Safe Harbor, you know, 43% dent-to-income ratio, there's typically equity in a loan. The risk is much less, so therefore the anticipated revenue stream is more stable. So there's a couple different reasons for why loans get sold off to different places, and hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, so I know that there's, you know, A, B, C paper, right? There's different ratings for these things you know, when they're putting together some of these tranches and they do a mix of some A, some C paper, can you maybe just explain kind of how that credit rating could occur and how that might influence what's being bought or sold or packaged together? Sure. So a couple different components with that. So obviously as a customer, you would say, hey, I have an 800 credit score as an example you might think, boy, that would enable me to be a a more attractive applicant for borrowing money than somebody with, say, a credit score significantly under 700. And therefore, if you're doing risk-based pricing, which most companies do, the person with a lower credit score, mortgage risk score, default score, basically, they're going to pay a premium because they know that out of maybe 10,000 loans that are at a certain credit score, X amount of them will default. That's why they may end up with a higher interest rate. And then what will happen is if that mortgage performs over time, that loan may be sold because it met a risk element at the time, a yield element that the institution wanted to have. And now it's performing and it's an asset to the bank that's been performing very well. And another institution may say, you know what, we would like to have 10,000 of those types of loans. So they're sold back and forth. And that's why the servicing can change when the mortgages change. Every time I, I think of like mortgage-backed securities, and this is probably a horrible analogy and thing to think of even as a planner, but I always think of like the movie, The Big Short, right? What happened in 2007, 8, 9, with all the meltdowns of this. Would you mind talking just a little bit on like how this whole market essentially imploded, causing all of these chain reactions throughout multiple industries and markets? And you know, what, what kind of happened in the mortgage-backed security industry during that time period? Well, I've been doing this for 20 years and I feel like I've seen a lot and I would tell you that I'm certainly not an expert in that. It's really not what I do from the perspective of how that helps a customer today apply for an effective mortgage solution. I'm simply looking at the charts. I'm looking at the bond market. I'm looking at people's profiles and I'm giving them, I believe, prudent advice as far as what options might be most beneficial for them from a perspective of either interest rate cost savings or out-of-pocket money savings matching up a goal that's important to them. So having said that, you look at it and you go, over the years of looking at this industry, I've seen many, many things. In the past, it used to be there was such an appetite for fixed income investments that in order to create those investments, the standards for originating loans became more and more liberal. So Back in the early 2000s, I remember companies doing loans for stated income, stated assets, where basically you had a credit report, credit score, and you could state whatever your income was, state whatever your assets are, and if you went to settlement and had that money, you would own a home. And the problem with that is that those really weren't affordable. And the reason why that stuff changed, it was really, most of those loans were really designed for self-employed borrowers or commission type people where their incomes would be 
changing and harder to qualify versus somebody that says, Hey, I get X amount per hour, or I make a salary of X people's incomes change. And because of that, they started to say, well, Hey, these business loans, loans to people like that, they perform pretty well. We should open that up to other people and see how it works out. And the reality is it didn't make sense because people were saying, Hey, I want to buy that million dollar house, but I'm very optimistic that my income will grow in the future and I'll be able to get that. So they would apply for that type of a loan. They would get it. And then six months later, they couldn't afford the loan anymore. So they would start to go into default. So that's kind of the origin of why those loans took place to begin with. And then after it all crashed, when they started to all default, then it caused the spiral down and the correction. And that led to legislation basically saying, Hey, today, if you're going to give somebody a loan, you really need to make sure that the borrower has the ability to repay. That's the ATR rule that came out of Dodd-Frank. And what that basically means is if you're a lending institution and you lend someone money for a mortgage, the debt to income ratio shouldn't be higher than 43%. If there is, there's potential that the customer could form a complaint to get their money back, basically the interest charges back. I'm sure that would be a pretty legal process but it does involve another type of underwriting for that banking institution to approve those higher risk loans for the continuity of someone's income. Yeah, it makes sense. And you know, Wall Street had unlimited appetite in the in that, you know, 2006, 7, 8 timeframe until they didn't and realized, uh-oh, we're in some trouble. And I'm happy you brought it back into kind of where we're at today with why we've got the debt to income ratios and why it's a little more strict to to get loans. And I think that helps really educate you know the potential borrowers on what you're doing and why we're doing it. It's not you know Jim's rules for this. This is rules set by the bank, the FDIC, the Fannie Freddie, who's potentially buying some of this stuff. It's not just up to you to decide, oh, today this is my rule, but tomorrow it could change. Not how that works. Well, Jim, as we round out the show, I, I really appreciate you coming on and sponsoring the show and just being an active part of our community and helping out hundreds and hundreds of physicians can you tell everyone just a little bit about yourself and about your program as we wrap out the show? Sure. I appreciate that, Ryan. So my name is Jim Webster. I'm with the Fulton Mortgage Corporation. I work for a financial services company that's a bank in the Mid-Atlantic. We do loans basically from New Jersey down to Virginia, a little bit of Pennsylvania, Maryland, D.C., Delaware. And what I specialize in, what I focus in is working with newer doctors typically who are looking to become homeowners, want to buy a home, don't have a huge amount of money for a down payment or a closing cost and that kind of thing. So my program enables a buyer to buy a home for zero down, up to $1 million, 5% down, up to 1.5 and 10% up to $2 million. There's no mortgage insurance. There's no prepayment penalties. Obviously, we're looking for very good credit score customers. Obviously, what we would do is interview a person, go through the pluses and minus and let someone know if they qualify. And if they're looking to buy a home, that's what they want to do. We try to enable them to be able to be a buyer today rather than renting and paying a bunch of taxes between now and then saving up money for a couple of years before they can buy that home or buying a small home initially and then selling it and buy another one and another one, another one. We're trying to help people get to where they want to get as quickly as possible and create a financial vehicle that benefits them with the lowest out-of-pocket money and with some very aggressive rates. 
Yeah. And if you're looking at buying a house in, in the upcoming you know, months, you know, I highly encourage you to reach out to Jim. He's not only helped lots of people in our community and I've received lots of feedback. I actually met Jim through one of his competitors. So I know that he's doing a really good job if his competitors are telling me how great he is to work with and how much he knows. And clearly, you know, quite a bit. And it was uh, even some of the financial planners that sneaky and listen to the show, I think might have even learned a little bit about mortgage-backed securities today. So thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it and, you know, appreciate all your support as well. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. And now let's jump into our curbside console called in by our friend and community member, Michelle. Hey, Ryan. My name is Michelle. I'm a fourth year medical student, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's been an amazing resource. I just have a quick question for you. Coming in as an incoming intern in July, my program does a 403B, but I'm not entirely sure if they do 100% employer matching. And I was wondering if it would be worth it to not do that and go ahead and start up with a Roth IRA. But I really don't know much about the two of those things and which one would be the better choice. And I'd really like to hear your insights on each of them. Thank you so much. Michelle, thanks so much for calling in with our curbside consult. Now, you totally could do the Roth IRA option, especially if there's no matching and you're just starting to get money in a tax-deferred setting that is going to not only grow tax-deferred, uh, but it'll come out tax-free. So it's pretty cool, especially in your non-peak earning years, to invest in the Roth setting. Now, this could you know, not be the absolute best decision as we don't know anything about your student debt or really anything else going on in your finances. I'd be curious if you are or are not going for PSLF or public service loan forgiveness. Now, if you're doing public service loan forgiveness, lowering your income might be the best option. And that would mean that you'd have to put money into the 403B. Now, this could easily be outweighed if you have horrible investment options in your 403B. But again, we don't know all the specifics. So I think that's something to think about as you evaluate your options. I know that for us, when Tay was in residency, it made sense for us to try and put whatever we could in her Roth IRA versus her 403B. Now, it didn't help that she thought her 403B was a scam, which is funny, but you know the options were pretty bad in that 403B. Now, we were still dating, so I didn't jump in more. And honestly, we were broke, so it probably didn't matter that much. But when you're in attending, it's going to be hard to get money into the Roth setting. Your taxes are going to be higher. You're going to be earning more and more, especially as you know, an attending, your career is going to progress. It's going to be harder to get money in that Roth setting. So it might not be a bad option to hit the Roth IRA now versus the 403B. But again, weigh the options, pros and cons, because the big difference here is actually how it's going to funnel through with public service loan forgiveness. Thank you so much for calling in. Really appreciate you. And I want to offer you all the same opportunity that Michelle had here on the show. If you want your question featured on air, please go to financialresidency.com slash question, and I'll make sure that I add it to one of our upcoming episodes. Now, one of my favorite segments that we do is our quick community updates on what is happening, you know, in or around the financial residency community. And I am really excited to announce that we have another book coming out. 
and we have just got the name down and it came from one of our community members, Mark Shorman, who's an MD, and he took us up on the offer that we threw out in our community that if you could think up the title for our next book, then we were going to send you a $100 gift card. Now, if you're not in our community and you haven't seen that, I didn't post it anywhere publicly. It's in our private community that you can join us. It's free. Financialresidency.com slash community. We got some behind the scenes stuff. We always carried out some fun things that we're working on. If you haven't joined us, please do. But Mark Charman, thank you so much for being our quote unquote winner. And the title that he came up with that we absolutely loved for our book is called The Hippocratic House. And the subtitle, something along the lines of how to do no harm when purchasing your first physician home. So I'm really excited that we're doing this. It's going to come out early September release. If you want to be on the pre-order list, you can go to financialresidency.com slash pre-order. All you got to do is give us your name and your email. We'll make sure that you know ahead of time when it's coming out so you get it before everyone else. There's probably going to be some pretty cool perks coming along with that as well. So you can go to financialresidency.com slash pre-order if you want to be on that list. Now, the book is going to help you understand how the mortgage industry works, how the real estate industry works with talking and negotiating and all the fun stuff that happens when you go buy your first home. Even if you've bought a home, you might've done it incorrectly. This book will help you understand the ins and outs on both sides of that and be able to purchase a home without potentially getting screwed out of a bunch of money. So I know it's going to help a ton of you. All of your questions are around this stuff and I'm excited to launch the Hippocratic House that's going to release early September. Now, before we end, it's time for our important disclaimer. This show is for educational purposes only. Please do not just take what we've said and run with it. This is your hard-earned money, and you need to know that this is not advice specific to you. If you need a financial planner, we would love to work with you at Physician Wealth Services. That is our fee-only financial planning practice that we work exclusively with physicians all across the country. But If you don't work with us, no worries, but please reach out to a CPA or your attorney, someone that knows your situation before you do anything that we've even remotely talked about on the show. And it ended out with a fun dad joke. Now, I know a lot of jokes about retired people, but none of them work. Hashtag dad jokes. All right, I'm out. See you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers. 